The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Drumroll, please. This is Shaken and Stirred. Hi, I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and I'm with my great friend and pal, Tom Astor. Good evening. Good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, or who knows what time it is. Tom, it's five o'clock somewhere. It is. In, in your world, it's five o'clock. In my world, it's 10 p.m. Well, there you go. But that something tells me, Tom, that it's actually five o'clock in the afternoon, even when you wake up, because I've been with you on holiday, on vacation, and you're making uh, Bloody Marys as soon as we wake up, or it's a mimosa, or it's, you know, oh, goodness, why don't we have some champagne with this lobster? Yeah, I have no idea when the next holiday is. Holidays seem like a distant thing. I mean, something that might happen again at some point, but right now, it's not looking good. We don't sort of suggest that, you know, just because we're in quarantine, that somehow your life has changed in any way, shape or form. This is a man who actually invented quarantine. He just didn't call it quarantine. He called it cocktail hour. And he's lived it basically for the past 35 years, as long as I've known him. So just, just, just to sort of clear things up, don't feel sad or sorry for him by any stretch. This is the perfect excuse to lock himself in, do a lock-in and sort of say, oh, so sorry, I'm going to have to go down to my cellar again. I have been self-isolating from the age of five. Look, Tom, on that note, what are you drinking, old boy? Do you know what I'm having tonight? And this is going to surprise you, and there's a reason behind it. I am literally having a glass of rosé, and I will give you the reason why. I had a fabulous cocktail lined up, and we were ready to go and make it. And then I reread some of the correspondence I've had recently with our guest this evening. And given her reputation, given her achievements in life, when our guest says to us that she can't wait for our podcast and she knows the perfect cocktail, it's been too long, so she's looking forward so much to talking to us. When someone of her caliber says that she knows the perfect cocktail, there is just simply no point in competing. So I have literally just gone and opened myself a glass of rosé and I'm saving my cocktail for later. I mean, there's just no point. I'm intrigued as to what's going to come up. I'm not shocked that you took the easy road because that yeah. is really what you do. Actually, that's pretty much Tom Astor in his natural state. I, on the other hand, have done something completely different. I have made myself one of the classic three cocktails. It's called a Negroni, people. Of course it is. Negroni, the Martini, and the Manhattan. The Negroni, one of the oldest cocktails, it basically created almost 100 years ago, in fact, 101 years ago, by Count Camilo Negroni, who actually was a big fan of America and spent a long time sort of traveling through the US. And whilst he was in the US, he used to drink the Americano. Now, the Americano, which is uh, essentially Campari and soda water with a bit of vermouth, he wanted to step it up. And in Europe, he, he went into his, his local bar. He's like, look, I want to step this up, step the Americano up. What can we do? What did they do? They added gin. They really stepped it up. So it's one of the great cocktails in large part because it's so simple to make, right? It's one to one to one. You really can't mess it up. You know, there's so many cocktails. You go somewhere, you go to the bartender, you say you want a certain cocktail, whatever it might be. And it's sort of down to interpretation. The bartender does his little twist, his little thing. So you're not quite sure what you're going to get. That can work in your favor. It can also be a negative. With the Negroni, it's very hard to go wrong. So you actually have a very consistent cocktail, which makes it, in, many, in my eyes at least, the sort of the perfect cocktail because you know what you're going to get no matter where you go. However, of course, the gin, that can change. If you know, you, I like a London dry gin because it's not too floral. It hasn't got too much going on. You have to 
I think really get to know your vermouths, your sweet vermouths, which it's made with, because they do vary a little bit. And if you, you know, you don't put a sweet vermouth and you want a little drier, it changes the flavor quite dramatically. Now, the Campari aspect of it, I learned something rather interesting that I didn't actually fully know. I was sort of researching Campari and the color of Campari. Now, Tom, I'm not sure if you knew this, but they don't do this anymore, by the way. But for a long time, Campari gets its red color from cochineal, right? Now, cochineal, and I've heard of cochineal all my life. My mother used to cook with it, and it's used in cooking. In fact, a long time ago, when Starbucks first you know, started making the frappuccinos, they colored their frappuccinos with cochineal. It's something that makes things go red. However, cochineal is made from bugs, literally crushed bugs. So Campari used to have crushed bugs in it. So <laughs> the Negroni wasn't vegan, put it that way. So that's changed, no longer the case. But you'll find cochineal in many cocktails. So that's something I didn't know. So look out for it. If you're a vegan, not all cocktails are vegan. There you go. Cheers. Chin chin. Clearly you haven't listened to our previous podcast where um, I told you that before. Been a while since we made a Negroni, but you know, I think it's always good to, to, to revisit the classics. In fact, your Negroni didn't taste anything like as good as mine. <laughs> yeah, you look like a crushed bug as well. And actually, on that note, Tom, we're going to move on rather swiftly, I think. Um, we have a little bit of booze news. Oh, good. You've been texting me all day about your booze news, about how excited you are about getting this out there. I'd say two things today. Firstly, the booze news better be just, just mind-bogglingly incredible. Secondly, I'm just so excited about our guest cocktail this evening because if she doesn't match your attention to detail on the cocktail, then well, I'm going to push for it anyway because that was, I've got to say, Nigel, that was brilliantly done. And if you're in any doubt about drinking Negroni, by the way, that was the most perfect intro to Negroni. Or you listened to an earlier podcast when Tom did it. But, um, but you know, he didn't really do it properly, which is the reason yeah, well, why I, I do. Didn't. I look like a Negroni, though. Well, you do look like a Negroni. And actually, before I get on to booze news, because I'm about to do booze news, you can actually check out me making my Negroni on um, Shaken and Stirred, our Instagram account. I've actually done a little tutorial with a little history of it. So I know you're listening to it right now, but if you want to actually visually see me making it at home, I even have orange pants to match my Negroni. Check us out on the Shaken and Stirred Show. It's at Shaken and Stirred Show on Instagram, and you can check out the whole thing. It's a lot of fun, and it's simply delicious. But booze news, booze news. So we talked about gin. It's one of the three ingredients in the Negroni, and everyone is in on the act. And I mean everyone. Okay, it's a quarantine. Well, guess what? The Queen, Buckingham Palace I'm talking about, is making its own gin, and it's for sale. You can buy it. 40 pounds a bottle, that it is 50 bucks because the dollar is so strong against the, the pound, I guess. But it's 50 bucks a bottle for Buckingham Palace gin. Now, check this out. They haven't just stuck their name on things. They're actually getting the botanicals, 12 of them, from the Royal Gardens at Buckingham Palace. How fabulous is that? And it is infused with citrus and herbal notes, such as lemon verbena, hawthorn berries, which if you know your gin, slow gin is made with hawthorn berries. That's how it gets that flavor. And um, bay leaves and mulberry leaves. So there's to name a few of the 12 coming from the Queen's own garden. Now, it's rather fabulous, actually, and they're going to be serving this at all royal functions. So <laughs> it's, they're onto something, and they're probably going to be selling the gin to themselves by the sounds of things. And it, it turns out the Queen's dresser has actually said that she cleans the Queen's diamonds 
in gin and has done for 25 years, if not longer than that. So there is a lot of gin going on at the Buckingham Palace. They are cleaning diamonds in gin. They are drinking gin, they're serving gin. I mean, this is almost as bad as Marie Antoinette and let me cake comment. I mean, if people start getting the idea of the Queen as cleaning her diamonds with gin, you know, all these people struggling at the moment to just, you know, save up enough money to buy a bottle of booze, but the Queen is bathing in gin. The other thing I'd say, as you know, I used to live a stone's throw away from the Queen's Garden in Buckingham Palace. And I've got to say that there are more botanicals than the ones you just listed. I mean, we have got particulate of diesel from the number 38 bus. That's it. I mean, Hyde Park Corner is right next to the Queen's Garden and it is the busiest roundabout in London. It's a little bit like Mexico City. I mean, you're talking about proper, proper fug in the morning round there during rush hour. And I'm just wondering, how do they keep those delicious hawthorn berries and whatever it is, you know, looking fresh and, and actually alive, given the kind of the acidity that must be in the air? Well, clearly you have not been invited to tea with the Queen. I'm not going to comment. And if you go to lunch or tea with the Queen, you'll see that her garden is looked after by some rather amazing royal gardeners who've taken care of all the smog. And by the way, thank you for ruining my chance for giving sent a free bottle of Buckingham Palace gin and our sponsorship for Buckingham Palace gin, which I was hoping that, you know, we were going to be having a drink fit for a Queen, by the way. Well, think of yourself. <laughs> All righty, we do have a fabulous guest. You've been talking about her, you've been already alluding to her. She's looking incredible, by the way. We actually got a little preview that we don't normally get where she was getting the drink ready. We kind of almost, I think, saw her making her cocktail, which is incredibly exciting. I'm going to describe it to you before I introduce you because she's an extraordinary person. You're going to have to hear her bio, which is slightly absurd. But the drink itself is iridescent in this glass. And it, it looks like a, I, I don't even want to have my cocktail anymore. I want what she's drinking. So before I get to it, our guest today is a world-renowned chef. Okay, not just world-renowned. We're talking about the first woman inducted into the Culinary Hall of Fame author, restaurateur, contributing editor, television host, actress, philanthropist, health and fitness expert, lifestyle entrepreneur, proud mother of six. Of course, in reverse order, please welcome the first female Iron Chef, Kat Cora. Hi, cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. It is going particularly well now that you are here. It's slightly absurd that you have such an incredible bio. I mean, the, the list goes on. And by the way, that's just, just the tip of the iceberg with you. It's abundance of riches. I was like, whoa, okay, awesome. Wow, I got tired thinking about it. I need a drink now. I'm sort of parched having just read, read your sort of who you are and what you do. I mean, it's, look, before we get to it, we always do this on, on Shaken and Stirred. We, we, we have a drink. I see, I've described your drink from what it looks like on the outside. What are you drinking, Cap? Well, this is what I call a Greek island breeze. So there's ouzo, a little vodka, pomegranate juice. I hit it with just a little bit of uh, pineapple juice, lime, and mint. So Greek island breeze in my iridescent uh, kind of flashy wine glass. So cheers. What do you have there? I've got a Negroni, and Tom's just drinking wine because he, he, he was too embarrassed to compete with you. Do you know, seriously, we came on normally, Nigel and I, we make a cocktail each, we describe our cocktails. He said to me at the introduction, he was like, what are you drinking? I was like, glass of rosé. And he went, well, where's your cocktail? I said, well, I had a cocktail plan. And then I read through some of the messages that have been sent recently, you know, between the teams. And one of the messages I read was, can't wait for the, the podcast. 
I know the perfect cocktail. It's been too long, so I'm looking forward. You know, and I read that, and I was like, reading your bio, and then reading that, I was like, what is the point of even trying to attempt to make? Pop? You know, there's no point. <laughs> nice then. He made a terrible mistake. He then sort of very sort of um, you know, involved, you know, description of the Negroni. Oh my god. And all the way through it, it doesn't matter how much research he's done. I said, You're on a lost leader here, you're gonna get blown away by um by Cat's cocktail. And I would really love one of those right now. Refreshing. Ah, the difference is is that Tom gives up when he thinks that you know that he can't. I, on the other hand, are incredibly competitive. So <laughs> what I like to do is bring on the best of the best and then just try and outdo them. Love it. Lucky we're not in a kitchen together right now. Otherwise, I would literally be trying to cook something for you just to sort of show off. But I think you might have me beat. So is the story? What's the story behind your cocktail? A little bit. I know that you're Greek, obviously. So exactly, I come from a Greek background. You know, my dad is uh, Greek. My family's from Skopelos, and um, which you is can tell by the I'm accent. By the way, your accent gives away your Greek heritage. Exactly, Southern Greece. But if you, if you ever saw Mamma Mia, that's the island my family's from. So it's a beautiful island. And, and this is just, I love I love the Mediterranean. I love those flavors. And ouzo, it's just an acquired taste. It's something that, you know, it is a sipping, even though, you know, it gets a bad rap, just like tequila had at one point. But it's a beautiful sipping kind of aperitif. And I like to put it in here with a little pomegranate juice and a little squeeze of lime and mint, as we all know, are flavors of the Mediterranean. So I just thought this this would be a great one to bring on to you and like see if you could, you know. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to be making it up. I'm going to be creating it. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming. I might even improve on the recipe, Kat. You know, that's what I'm thinking. You know, what, what can I do to add to it? You know, exactly. we'll you do go. something. Very, very jealous. So where are you right now? I see people milling around you. Actually, I'm so excited because this is our third Mesa Burger. You know, I have a craft burger place in Santa Barbara called Mesa Burger. We have one in uh, two locations. This is our third location. We just did our first run through today, which went fantastic. So we're doing it to train the staff and we're inviting in some of the people who built the place. And, uh, you know, we just did our run through. It went great. And so we're excited. We open on Tuesday. And I have to say, you know, although all of my other restaurants are closed, a lot of the fine dining, the sit down restaurants are closed and have been since March. Our craft burger place has actually been very lucky because we've been able to kind of pivot and do takeout delivery, which has gone really well for us. And we were lucky enough to get PPP loans. And so we're doing okay in this market. But, you know, we are ready to, you know, it's been really hard, as you know, in the restaurant industry. It's been one of the hardest hit. We are no different. You know, I have 18 restaurants and most of them, except our craft burger places, are closed still. So we're doing the best we can. Well, you, you seem to be doing pretty well. So you said this is the third one, but do you you have eighteen restaurants, or is this one of the, of the eighteen? This is one that has three. This is one that has three. So we have about you know we've got our Cat Wars kitchens and the air. We have our airport restaurants. We have some of our corporate dining. We have a stadium. We have you know different places as you know. And you know the thing is, is it's just been a really hard hit industry. Like I mean, all all of us are hit hard by this by the pandemic, and um, you know we've all had to kind of figure it out and pivot and have a new paradigm. And that's what we've been trying to do in the restaurant industry. And I know a lot of my friends have been really, truly hard hit like we have. So again, this is exciting for me because it's the one restaurant that was able to be able to stay open and sustain itself and get through it and actually finally open the doors of our third one. So 
It does. Um, no, that's amazing. Congratulations. And I, for sure, there's, there's no doubt restaurant industry has had an incredibly hard time. And, you know, we, I've got friends of mine who are trying to open restaurants in New York. And, you know, one buddy of mine has taken two years in the making and they were finally about to open. And of course, quarantine hit. And poor fellow, um, huh. you know, this whole thing is now on hold. And who knows whether maybe it will ever open because, you know, restaurants cost so much money to put together and open, especially your first one. You know, you're a trusted name. People are going to, you know, I can imagine people are queuing up to lend you money to, to build these restaurants and all the rest of it. And I mean, when, when I look at your list, you run the gamut. I mean, you go from sort of burgers to fine dining to tap rooms. And do you serve cocktails at this particular restaurant? This one, we're serving beer and wine. And we have, we're, we're doing these sake drinks, which are really cool that we're able to do. And I think when we get further on, we're going to expand this concept. We'll do, when we find spaces that, lend itself to that, we will definitely have a full bar. And uh, this works here for Santa Barbara in this area. It's such a beach beach area and, you know, beer and wine is kind of a, a thing. And as, as many, we're in the Central Coast. So we're in one of the best wine regions in the, in the world. So, you know, we've really been able to tap into that and really highlight it. So I think it works here. And as we expand, we'll, we'll look into like doing full bars. And a lot of my other restaurants are full bars. The ones in the airports and other places are, you know, we definitely have great cocktails. Um, we just, again, like, as you said, when you have a sit down restaurant, especially the fine dining restaurants, I know a lot of my friends who have these, big, you know, three-star Michelin chefs, one star, a lot of these friends and colleagues who have these very high-end restaurants, very hard to sustain during this time. Very, very hard. No, very hard. They're doing a lot, everything they can, obviously. And, you know, we're all staying in contact with each other, trying to help each other on social media, trying to, you know, uplift each other, amplify each other. And uh, that's all you can do is really just stay a part of connecting and, you know, helping each other. And that's what the community is about. That's what I, you know, the silver lining about the pandemic has been that this is an equalizer. This is a great equalizer. You know, we're all at home. We're all with our kids who are homeschooling. We're cooking three, four meals a day, seven days a week. We're trying to figure out how to pay our rent. We're all trying to figure it out. And I think that that's the one thing that's been a hope that we take into after this pandemic, after we find a vaccine, after whenever that happens, that we go back into the world and we have compassion and empathy the way we have during this pandemic. Restaurants obviously employ a lot of people. I mean, you've got, you know, from the pot washers, to the sous chefs, to the porters, to this, to the waiters, to the waiters. In England, we've got this furlough scheme where the, the chancellor, the guy who's the treasury, the guy who looks after the money for the government, basically, I have a wedding venue, right? So the guy came in and said, we're going to furlough all the employees so we don't have mass unemployment. We're going to pay everyone's wages for three months. Right. Now, well, we're going to pay 80% of everyone's wages for the next three months. And as a business, you can decide whether you want to top it up to 20%. But if you're furloughed, it means you go home and you can't work. Do you get that kind of help in America or for your restaurant staff? Well, we do. With the, you know, with the CARES Act, we've been able to get PPP loans, which is helping to pay our staff. I mean, you pay a majority of that goes to paying your, your staff. And so we've been able to do that. Um, in some of our restaurants, we've been able to, again, keep people on the payroll, find other things for them to do um, that can supplement their income. You know, and in some situations, people have to go on unemployment, like a lot of us, you know, right now, you know, and we hope that once we can reopen, we can hire people back. Obviously, they have first right of refusal to come back, hire them back. You know, that's that's what we can do here. The PP, you said PP loans. Does that mean you, you say you're giving the money to kind of carry on paying the stuff? Does that mean loan? Does that mean that you're expected to pay it back at a later date? Because so, in England, the furlough scheme is like all my stuff, my kind of the 25 people that I employ on my weddings, 
I've sent home. And they're, they're paid by the government to stay at home. 80% of their wages are paid. It's my choice whether I want to, whether I want to make it up to 100%. And it's basically the government are paying. It's a grant. It's not a loan. So there's no, you know, it's not ever going to be paid back. You, if you do it correctly by the protocol of this loan, you do not have to pay it back. I love the fact that we're talking um, finance with Kat here. We're talking money. That's okay. And that's okay, believe me. We're all, we're all in it. We've all become teachers, chefs, financial managers. <laughs> we're all doing, we're, we're wearing all the hats of everything right now. You made, you're talking about employees and bringing them back. Now, I know that one of the big things about the restaurants locally to us is that so many of the wait staff have gone on, you know, unemployment. And they want to open again, because now in New York, you can open, right? But they can't get the wait staff back again because they're on unemployment. And they, it's better for them to be on unemployment than it is to get, get their job back. So there's simply not enough wait staff. So now the restaurants can't open because they're waiting for unemployment to end. Again, it's, it's such an uncertain time for everybody. It's such a crazy time. And trying to juggle it all and figure it all out, it's what comes first. Is the chicken or the egg. You know, what do we do first? We were just talking about this with you know my partner here is that there's no regulations, there's no federal regulations in America across the board. It's just state by state, and everybody is trying to figure out what do we do if we have one employee who comes down with COVID. Do you close the whole restaurant? Do you you know of course you send that person home. Anybody who's been near them, you get them tested. Everybody gets tested. You quarantine for a certain amount of time. You know what is the answer? So there's no federal regulations yet in place to give people guidelines. So it's really, it's experimentation of what works. How many states are, you, are your restaurants in? I mean, how, how much bureaucracy are you dealing with on that basis? Well, I've got places in New York. I've got places in, you know, um, here in, in, you know, in California. We had a restaurant, we have a restaurant in Singapore. I mean, we're kind of spread out. So we have, you know, Utah, Texas. I mean, so we're, we're kind of everywhere, you know, all over. So everything is, is very state to state and region to region. There's a lot of questions that are very tough to answer right now as far as what do you do if? And I think that's what we're all trying to figure out. But again, there's no federal regulations to tell, or no, nothing standardized in America to help people go, that's what you do, because this is the standardized way we do it. This is the regulation. I mean, I know we're talking all the business side of it, and it sucks, and it's right. very difficult and confusing. But there are people also trying to make something of it, too, the sort of whether it's a silver lining or whether it's just like, this is how I pivot or this is what I do. But you've been doing something you call quarantine, which is quarantine, right? So a lot of fun. You've been cooking, you've been making recipes. What, what inspired that? And, and how's that been going? Well, it's been going great. I mean, we call it quarantine cuisine. And um, we had someone, we had a, uh, someone that was on the show and that we were talking to and they said, you know, you should say, you should call it quarantine cuisine because of my last name. And so I said, that's brilliant. Why didn't we think of that? And uh, hire that gave, person. <laughs> yes, hire that person. We basically were like, give her lots of credit. And um, we started this because frankly, I was cooking dinner every night. And my wife said to me, she said, we should just, do an Instagram live because there are so many people reaching out to us going, I don't know how to do this three times a day. I don't know how to do this seven days a week. I've never cooked this much in my kitchen. What do I do? What recipes do I do? How do I make the, how do I make meals for my family 24 seven? So I thought we need a hotline. You know, I needed, I needed to do something, be a small part of the solution, connect with, you know, 
folks out there in the world and really give them a hotline and a place to come, not only for entertainment and have some fun, but also to get tips and recipes and how do I do this? And so we, you know, I try to answer everybody that talks to us or, you know, ask questions. And I think it really was for me, it was just giving people, I'm doing it anyway. I might as well share it with the world. I've got to cook dinner myself just like this. And so I'd come in, whatever I, you know, hair pulled back, you know, no makeup on, just like I would be at home, you know, it was just authentic. And that's what I love. One of the other parts of all of this has been that everybody has been so authentic for the most part. Everybody has been much more authentic than, you know, we're doing Zoom meetings with some of the top executives and partners, you know, around the world and their kids come in and go, I'm hungry, you know, <laughs> so, or their dogs are barking or the baby's crying. And so it's just real. It's, it's, it's kept it real. You know, and everybody's out there hustling. Everybody's trying to make some sense of all of this and trying to make a living at the same time when entertainment industry is shut down. You know, I'm sure you're in, you know, your industry, you you understand that the cooking industry, the food industry as well. And so we're all just trying to do the best we can. And we're all kind of in the same boat. So for me, it was my way to do a small part, my service to the world and to be able to really be authentic and say, look, I'm doing this too. I'm trying to cook on a shoestring budget. I'm trying to cook with things that are, you know, sustainable in my pantry. So we just gave a lot of tips and advice to people out there that needed help. Have there been certain types of foods that, that you've sort of concentrated on, that, knowing now that you're not just making things out of your own kitchen, but you're making things for other people, you know, where people are asking for certain things like, I don't know, how do I make something with hamburger helper or something? Yeah. I don't know. How do I make meatloaf? How yeah. do I make a great meatloaf? Yeah, it's been really comfortable. It's been a lot of, you know, listen, we had to go back to canned foods, frozen foods, all the things that, you know, were shelf stable and things that could last. And we were freezing everything. So, you know, I think that what we've learned in this is that, listen, you can make amazing meals out of things that are frozen. You know, we don't have to be so precious, you know, in our cooking that really when it comes down to it and you have a tight budget, because in the beginning, remember when we were going to the, half the grocery store would be sold out of things. It was no, it was very scarce. And that's changed some, but it was a chance for me to be able to show people how to cook with frozen foods, whatever you had on hand, pasta, rice, all those things that were shelf stable, because I think that's what people really needed was I'm on a budget. You know, we're talking about middle America. I'm on a budget. I've lost my job. I'm on unemployment. I've got three, four kids. What do I do? Even people who were just single, who were solo and had to go through this quarantine by themselves. What do I do? So it was the gamut. So I tried to kind of help everybody along the way and really give them some advice on how to do it when, you know, we're really just on a budget and we're trying to use shelf-stable products and things that last. And you have not three kids, not four kids, like you mentioned. You have six, six kids. And not just kids, six boys. Yeah, boys. I mean, so hungry Hungry boys. Well, I have one child, one son. I have a daughter, but my son, it literally eats like a horse. So all I can say is I can only imagine, how has that been? I mean, how have the boys been during quarantine? I, I, can, I don't, You don't have to be completely honest, but I just, give me, a, give me a sort of a high level version. Well, the good thing about having six kids that I found out in quarantine by talking to my friends who had a girl and a boy, for instance, like you, they're in different places, they're in different worlds. And for boys, I have to say, the pleasant surprise for us was they are like a tribe and they all get, they just kind of roam like this in a tribe. And if one of them gets tired of another one, they go to the other one. So they kind of keep each other pretty 
intact, right. which was great. That was a nice surprise for us, which we weren't sure. But homeschooling in the beginning was with six boys, with everybody printing things out. Everybody had to be on their Zoom at a certain time. Everybody had to be fed before they were on their Zoom. It was busy. Um, but we got in the groove of it. And I will tell you, they do eat a lot. So we were shopping at the big box stores. And, you know, I still have a can of black beans like that's like that big. So, yeah, we were shopping at the big box stores and buying in bulk. Things are sort of back to normal, yet things are spiking again. They're going crazy again. It's funny how we've sort of settled into it a bit, haven't we? We've all kind of like no longer is it completely crazy. I mean, still, to be honest with you, toilet paper and cleaning products, for love or money, they seem to be just like never there. They're always gone. You're lucky if you, oh my goodness, there's a thing. I never thought you'd be so excited about getting fired toilet paper. Listen, I actually ha- went to Alabama to see my in-law. When I went into a Publix they have down there, which is a superstore, they had 409 on the shelf, literally only a couple of bottles. I bought them all to bring back because you can't buy it up, up north. It's like I sort of <laughs> felt like I was bringing some sort of illegal yeah, and, stuff. And you now can't buy them down south because people like you go in and buy the last bloody bottles. <laughs> well, you know. It's true. You've got to do what you've got to do. I know. It's like pride. You walk out with like a 12 pack of toilet paper. Normally you're just trying to like, like hide it somewhere. <laughs> now you're walking out like, see, I got the last toilet paper. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> Can I say, it's very funny before this, the podcast, looking at your bio and stuff, you know, you're looking at your achievements with your kind of, with your, you know, your restaurants, your Michelin stars and your accomplishments of, in, in cuisine. And the great thing about this, I guess, about this podcast is we never ever sit there and formulate it. You might give a list of questions we might ask, but we, you never kind of know where the conversation is going. But I did not have any expectations because I try to keep it free. But the last thing I thought I'd be talking to you about of someone with your with your history is jumbo tinned cans of beans and also teaching the Midwest how to cook. How does that translate from fine dining Listen, I think the thing about being a chef is that you have to uh, you have to adapt to any situation. And I've worked in three-star Michelin restaurants. You know, I've ran high-end restaurants. I own high-end restaurants, but, you know, I also own a craft burger place. So I think it's really about being a service to the people who support me every day. And it's how can I do that? I know who my audience is, and I know who my supporters are, and even new supporters and people that, you know, have been able to... Um, follow me or what have you, um, people that I'm following now that I think are just so amazing that, you know, it's, it's like we got to know each other, you know, it was like all the pretenses are gone. Everybody just got to know each other. And it was whether, you know, it was a chef who um, I didn't know before the pandemic hit who I had on my, on my show that I was like blown away, you know, um, Chef Diani, the female chef and Miami, who was, she was one of the first females to run a a whole food program for the Super Bowl this past year. So people like that, that are so interesting and fascinating that, you know, you learn about people and it's a time for you to, to, you know, seemingly are in this glamorous place to now just be real, to be able to be who you are and to cook for the people that are out there that need help and who need advice and need some kind of assistance and support out there. And to me, it was just really a a breath of fresh air. Yes, I know how to make these high-end three Michelin star dishes, but in a great hamburger, if you will, on that side. But I think this was so wonderful to just be able to be real, to be authentic, to take my makeup off, to not have to do my hair, to just put on something and cook. And that was really cool. And it was a really 
you know, a time just to be as genuine as possible for people. And I think that everybody needed that comfort. They needed that level of comfort out there because we were all going, everybody's going through it. I mean, we had so many friends who got sick from COVID who were, you know, some people died, some people are healthy and fine now. You know, some people are going through losing family members during this time, not from COVID, just from, you know, whatever it is, from cancer or whatever, who can't be with their family member when they're, you know, at the funeral, when they're dying. So I, I think it was just a time that people needed something that was real and then you'd be able to hold on to something and to get some comfort. And that's what I wanted to offer. No, absolutely. I mean, look, I think to be honest, I've, I, I mean, I can't say either I know you well, Kat, but we have met each other many times. We've spent a little bit of time together. I've had the opportunity to photograph you. Uh, and this is over uh, many years. So, it, so I sort of, one feels that one knows one, especially obviously with social media too, you kind of follow along, you get to see people, you get to see families, you get to see relationships a little yeah. bit. So one does feel to know. And, and if you are one of those people who in my opinion, all the things that you describe that people are being now, you've always been that way. And I think that's part of your own magic and, and why you've been so successful on so many shows. I mean, God, I talk about, okay, I was on Top Model and this show and that show. This, you for someone who has, I don't even know how, do you even know how many shows that you have been on? I don't know how many shows I've been on, but I definitely know that there have been some of the ones that I've just, you know, I started TV in 1999 and with Food Network, I've been on Bravo, NBC, ABC, Fox, I mean, you know, and doing various shows. The latest one was my uh, Family Food Fight on ABC with uh, Aisha Curry and Grant yeah. Nelly, which was an amazing experience. And, you know, I just, it's, it's just an exciting medium for me that to be able to be a part of something that's you know, wonderful people and these families that came together that you meet again, you meet and you've learned so much from them. And, you know, just like you were saying about me, I feel exactly about you, Nigel, is that you are so real. You, you are such a gentleman. You're so real and kind. And I've always felt like you're so authentic as well and so genuine. We really need to have a conversation. I've known this guy. Oh, do it. Oh. <laughs> we'll have another cocktail offline. I like this conversation that Kat and I are having. I really enjoy this mutual admiration society that's going on here. It's fantastic. The problem is you're, we don't have time to go through your bio because Nige tried at the beginning. You've just listed some of the things you've done. As far as I can work out, if we have an hour and a half, two hours, we can probably get through, you know, top to bottom. So, so bearing in mind that you cook for the Midwest, you cook impromptu cooking shows. You, you're clearly a very successful businesswoman. I cook for the you're, president, President Obama. Yeah, there we yeah. go. You cook for the president. You're clearly a very <laughs> successful businesswoman. You're clearly a very able chef. Otherwise, I just want to help you. <laughs> and you can homeschool, feed, and six boys with different <laughs> in different grades. So taking all that in, which is just making me, I don't know. I mean, it, it would make inadequate. No, well, <laughs> most people listening to this, not inadequate. I think slightly, you know, slightly kind of maybe inspired actually. But you can actually do all this stuff because you clearly have. Can, can I ask you, where did it come from? Is, it, is this a, something from your parents? How do you get to become you? I mean, where did it start? Well, I did start with my parents. My parents, I mean, my father was Greek. My mom was an Air Force brat who lived in Tokyo, Honolulu, kind of lived all over the world. So she had a very eclectic, her and my grandmother, who was, you know, I was very close to, had a very eclectic repertoire of cooking, global, if you will. You know, and they taught me so many things. I learned Greek cooking when I was very young and then just really, and of course, Southern as well, growing up in Mississippi. And, you know, I think for me and my godfather, who unfortunately just passed away this week, he didn't pass away from COVID. It was from, you know, he's 90 years old. He lived a great life. God bless him. And 
This is to him. This Uzo is for him. He's Greek, so cheers. And he was a huge inspiration to me because he owned restaurants when I was growing up. He also came from Greece, and he worked in some of the kitchens in Lyon, France. So he taught me some of my first dishes of classical cooking was just at my own home in Jackson, Mississippi with my godfather who'd worked in the kitchens of Lyon. So I was very blessed to have that. And he was an incredible businessman. So I, I learned a lot of business from him and a lot of the restaurant business as well. And then my parents just were, you know, so open to whatever you want to do, you should do it. You should go out there and you should get out. You should leave Mississippi. Even though I, I love the South, leave Mississippi, go out in the world, do something amazing. And so they were always pushing me to do whatever I wanted to do and be whatever I wanted to be. So I was very blessed that I had that kind of upbringing and, and, and food was abundant. Around. We, I mean, my dad was an incredible grillmeister. Like he taught me how to marinate meats. He taught me how to smoke turkey and brisket when I was really young and just taught me how to, to cook outdoors. My mom and grandmother taught me how to bake and cook indoor. And so I was just very lucky. And I, and I think being around restaurants at an early age with my godfather, really, I wanted to be around that energy. When you walk in and you hear laughter and you smell great food and you see people clinking glasses and cheers and you just, you wanted, I wanted to be a part of that. I just wanted, I said, I want to be a part of this world. And that's what really led me into this direction. And I, you know, I have them to thank. You know, Tom is godfather to um, my son. And the only thing that he's actually managed to teach him is actually how to make a cocktail, even though my son's about, was 14 or something at the time. So, you know, Tom has managed to impart a whole lot of, of cocktail in, advice. No, it's fun. Yeah, he's going to remember how fun no, you are. he's amazing. No, he's amazing. He's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Once this is all over, I'll get together. Yeah, we've we'll had more together. time. I'd teach him how to make a nice Bernays sauce. I mean, I can't believe you're sitting in Jackson, Mississippi, learning how to bake bread. But well, you're baking Greek bread, making French sauces. I mean, the oh Cordon Bleu, Cordon Bleu, Southern Smokery, Southern Brisket, baking. I mean, oh it is true. It's really pretty mind blowing that I learned how to, you know, my, my godfather taught me how to make ceviche when I was 15 oh. and making, like you said, all the mother sauces and things like that. And learning that, it was just, a, it's, it's a miracle because, you know, growing up, in places that aren't New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, and you're not growing up in London or what have you, you know, you're not growing up in a big city. You have to make your way. You got to figure it out. You know, you don't have a restaurant that's a three-star mission restaurant around the corner. You got to really figure out how to make your path. So I was very blessed that I had such incredible cooks around me and restaurateurs around me at a young age. So it's extraordinary because Mississippi, I mean, I, when I was at Nigel's wedding and I did a road trip from Alabama over to, uh, to Texas and obviously goes through Mississippi. It wasn't the first time I've been out there, but trying to find anything to eat that wasn't a burger or a Wendy's or a... My catfish, hush puppies, it's a, ribs. It's did you a, find any of that? Yeah, we, we did. But I mean, they were they were generally, if you're on the road, you know, unless you're kind of in the local know, and we didn't have bearing my... Yeah. Cracker barrel. If you're on the highway, yeah, no. He's talking 21 years ago. But that being said, Kat, it, you know, it, catfish, hush puppies, fried food... Yeah, okay, I get it. It's a Southern thing. My wife's from Alabama, right? So we go down there, we enjoy it. But it's sort of one of those things where you're like, after a couple of weeks, you're like, I can't. Yeah, you can't. You have to really, and I think for me, that's really from when I was growing up, it really was the Mediterranean that really got me. You know, I love Southern food, but like you said, in small doses because it's very rich and delicious. And when you have it, you're like, oh my God, this is incredible, but you can't eat it every day. 
the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean was something that I really felt like was something that I fell in love with. It's like soul food. So that's really the direction I went because growing up for me was you know, the neighborhood kids were eating fried okra. My mom was steaming artichokes with lemon and olive oil, you know, from Greece. No, I went with Nigel on holiday to Greece a few years ago. We had a lovely time. You know, between us, we probably couldn't come up with anything amazing we ate. But do you get back to your home? To- uh, it was so good. Everything was delicious. Everything. Okay. The sun, the people, everything. No, you know? we had a, our problem was is that we had an English chef. Okay. Let's just, yes. let's just face it. We had we were in Greece and we decided for some odd reason we had a British chef. So yeah. that was probably our fault, our problem. Um, but they tried. But the food was great, the fish was lovely. Next time go with us and we'll we'll get yeah. you some really authentic Greek food. You heard that, Tom. This is an invitation. We're gonna be the thing is is we were supposed to actually be there in May of this year, but of course everything got canceled. So my wife, Nicole, has never been to Greece. So I can't wait to and you know, uh, my in-laws, I can't wait to take them and show off Greece because it's to me, you know, I've been lucky enough to travel around the world as well. And it's like to me, Greece is the Greek islands are one of the most incredible places you could possibly be, really, truly. You have to go. Obviously, you, I mean, you've been, but you've got to take the rest of the family. They have to go and yeah, see it. Yeah, will. It's one so of our favorite places. This weekend, so. safely, we're going. So Tom and I have been going away together every two years with our families. So what happened is, is that, you know, obviously Tom and I met when we were 14 at school. We've been best friends ever since. I'm godfather to his daughter. He's godfather to my oldest son. We have another pal who is godfather to both our children. And the three families have gone all over the world together. Every two years, we pick a place. But it's a wonderful way, not just to hang out, but obviously we experience the food together. The godparents get to impart little bits of information, like I try and teach them how to take a photograph. Tom tries to teach them how to make a cocktail. And, um, you know, my, my son comes back and he's like to all his friends, look what I can make. I can make a Negroni. <laughs> and they're like, what? You know, how is that possible? I love that. If you're looking to change your diet, instead of restricting what you eat. What if you nourish your body with the healthiest and most nutritious food? With Sakara, you're putting the best in your body so you can feel your best. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they're designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. Along with delicious meals, Sakara also has daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. To boost results, try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, and fatigue. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash shaken or enter code SHAKEN at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A, dot com slash SHAKEN to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash SHAKEN. I would love to know, Kat, you know, obviously your Greek heritage, probably don't go back to Greece that often, but how much of your of your Greek heritage do you infuse into your food in general? Or is, is it just something that you are and it's just not necessarily in your food all the time? No, I definitely do incorporate it. I think I do it in ways that, you know, in my restaurants, it's there and it's subtle in a sense. Uh, one of my, my very first restaurants was very Greek. And, um, you know, I'd love to do that again someday. What does very think- Greek mean? What is very Greek? 
it, it was Greek. It wasn't like Mediterranean. It was Greek. It was like that part of the Mediterranean. Steak in the ground, it is Greek, you know? And so I'd love to do that again. I think that right now I, you know, just because of the styles of restaurants that I've opened, I've added touches of that into my food. And, you know, whether it's a salad or a burger or, a, you know, what I'm doing with a, a dish or what have you, and adding that in, that's always a part of my food in some way, you know, whether it's an influence of it or if it's a part of it or a part of a dish. So it's something that I've, I've, I'm absolutely in love with. I just want to, I'd love to continue it in a way that, you know, if I open my next restaurant, that we could do something really beautiful with Greek food again and really celebrate it. Who knows when that'll be, you know, who knows when that'll be, but we'll do that. But I definitely add it into every single thing that I do. And I cook that way almost all the time at home, you know, whether it's the skewers on the grill, I do Greek salads, you know, it's always part of our cuisine. How do you know what type of restaurant to open next? I mean, there's so many types of restaurants. You, you have a lot. I mean, how does one keep one's finger on the, on the sort of the pulse of the, the cuisine world? And do you bother? Do you, does that, is that how it, you factor into it? Or, you know, obviously a burger is a burger. Not that your burger is not more magical than the next, but it seems to be a bit of a home run, right, with a burger store because everyone in America loves a burger. What did you make a twist on it? Or do you need to do that? Or are you looking at the world of cuisine and thinking there's a hole here and let's fill it? I mean, you know, we're in unique times, but I think overall, the way that I kind of look at it, well, first of all, a lot of opportunities come to you once you start opening restaurants or you're on television. A lot of people come to you and they get, you know, we want to do this or we'd like to try this or do you want to partner and do this? Do you want to do a collaboration? So a lot of opportunities come to you, which then you can vet out and see is the deal right? Obviously, financially, you know, is that work? Do I like the partners? Is you know, their direction, the same idea as my direction and they're creative. So there's a lot of things to take in when someone approaches you about a concept or an idea or an opportunity. So I think it's really more right now, it's about vetting opportunities to come to us, which is a good place. To, it's a good position to be in. You know, it's, it's definitely different than trying to go out and forge a path. I mean, some of the, you know, younger chefs and newer chefs, are in that phase where they're forging a path. They're making a name for themselves. They're trying to open up and, and, and be successful and hit the mark and hit the nerve of America or their community and really have a home run, like you said. Um, I think now, right now, we're in a really good place that, that feels right where we, can, we want to take care of the restaurants we have. We want to make sure they are huge successes. And the ones that reopen, we want to make sure we go back in and we really dial it in and make sure that everybody is feeling pumped and dedicated. So it's really about also being a mentor and cheerleading and going in and making sure that everything is dialed in in your restaurants that you have. Because if you stop paying attention to those, that's a problem. And you, and you really are hurting your brand and you're hurting the restaurant and the dining community that's coming into your places. So it's really about caretaking that, not moving too fast not opening too many too soon. And I mean, because this has been kind of a marathon, not a sprint, you know, over these, all of these restaurants that we have now and making sure that we're keeping them you know, relevant, we're keeping the quality as high as possible, you know, and, and definitely making sure that our staff is excited and that we're not having a lot of turnover. So there's a lot of ins and outs to go into, but I think it really is about the opportunities that come to you right now and coming to us. Can I ask you, and it's like, maybe it's a totally inappropriate question, but, I asked a friend of mine who's a 
famous restaurateur in London, his name I shan't mention. I, I said I wanted to start a restaurant on my, my wedding venue, my farm where I am. I said, have you got any advice? He said, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He said, don't. And I went, what do you mean? He said, just don't. Whatever you do, do not open a restaurant. He's got six restaurants. And the four in London don't make any money at all in the city. The only one that turns a profit is one by the seaside, down in a limited place, anyway, by the seaside in England. And he said, for God's sake, don't do it. So on that basis, you know, when you're opening as many restaurants as you are and doing the business you're doing, you've got backers, obviously, coming in to, you know, who, who see your brand. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you do it yourself. But is it the same people behind you when you go into these business enterprises, right? Is your fine dining different from your burgers? Or is it, you know, do you have different groups of people? I mean, how, I, don't, I have no idea how that works. Yeah, we do. We have different partners in, in each of our certain groups of restaurants. So in the burger restaurant, I have a partner who is amazing. And you know, we've worked together for a while now. Obviously, we've had you know we have three restaurants going on, four, five, six, whatever. And I have partners in the other restaurants as well. So it's various partners. And, and the thing is, is that you have to get partners that have as much to lose as you do. You know, you have to have them as dedicated as you are to your brand. They have to have a brand. That's what we've done. We've been very, very meticulous in picking partners. And we've said no to a lot of things as well, because either the deal was wrong, the partners were wrong, the location was wrong, the idea was wrong. We weren't, we weren't cohesive in our creative thinking. So I think that all those pieces have to come together. You don't have to have the same partners across Board, but you do definitely have to make sure you're on the same page when it comes to creative, deal, location. You know, my father always said, well, if you are going to start a restaurant, you know, make sure you do it with someone else's money. I mean, that was always, that was his advice. True. And that's really, really good advice. And I think that I would say to anybody who's going to put in their life savings in a restaurant, don't do that. Like figure out another way. Oh. Don't take all your life savings and your kids' college funds and everything and try to put it in a second mortgage on a home. Don't do that. You know, and especially now, we've seen everything completely go upside down. So, you know, even before that, I would have said, never do that. I never do that. And I think that it's worked really well for me. And I think that, you know, that has to be completely separate from your life savings and your mortgage and everything else. And given what's happening, you kind of geared up for inevitable, you know, closures or do you kind of remain optimistic? I mean, or do we just don't know what's going on? I mean, are you in that position of just that limbo or? I think we're in a really good position because the fact of the matter is we have what I've done strategically taken on partners and in places that I know people need to be airports, stadiums, corporate dining, burger place was a no brainer as, as Nigel said, because everybody's going to eat burgers and, you know, it's a different kind of risk. So I think that what I've been able to do is I have no doubt all of our places are going to reopen. It's just going to take time. And this is a, it's a public, Thing, whether it's an airport and it has to be safety issues. So once that all comes back together and, and, and it's safe to do that again, and they feel safe to reopen, I'm no doubt ours are all going to reopen because we've strategically put them in places that people have to eat in. Look, I know your time is precious, Kat, but I, one thing I do really would like to discuss a little bit about before we wrap everything up is, oh, look, we, we talked right at the very beginning, you are the first female inducted into the Culinary Hall of Fame. You're the first female Iron Chef winner. All great things. And the first female thing is a, is a sort of a, something you have. It's a bit of a trend. But as much as that's wonderful, because you are the first, and congratulations, it also speaks to the fact that why aren't there more women in cuisine? Why are at the top of cuisine? 
and what is their situation with that? And, and, and I'd love to just hear about what, what that's like and why. Why, why. How have you been the first? How is that possible? Well, I think that that's been a lot of hard work, but it's also been a lot of being at the right time in the right place. But again, propelling myself in a way, making decisions. I didn't know that making a decision to go work in two three-star Michelin kitchens when I was you know, right out of culinary school and women weren't allowed in French kitchens. I was very lucky. I got eight rejection letters from three-star mission chefs and I got two that accepted me and I took both of them. I didn't know at the time that I was then going to be asked because of those skills to be an iron chef. So I just made decisions based on what my drive was and what I wanted to be and what I wanted to experience. But I think that, listen, we've made some progress, but we have a long way to go in this industry, just like a lot of industries. You know, there's only 7% of women who are either executive chefs or own their own restaurant in the country. So that is a very, very small number. And we got to get that number up. And I think it's really going to be with, you know, everyone amplifying, you know, again, it's a lot of industries too. Women need to amplify each other as well. Not only just the men need to help amplify the women and we need to be, there needs to be an equality, you know, whether it's inequality in pay, whether it's a gender equality, whatever that is. Also women have to support each other. I've really, I think been a big supporter of my colleagues that are females in this industry, no holds barred, you know, because I feel like that when I amplify them and I bring them up, it elevates our whole community. You know, whether I'm, you know, elevating or or giving a shout out to Padma or Giada or, you know, Alex, Shelley, whoever I'm shouting out to, it's always make sure that I'm being an example of a female who is amplifying females. And I think that's where we have to start. I think we can't depend on government. We can't depend on this. We have to do it ourselves and we have to start this movement. And I think that I try to do that with other women. I hope that other women will try to start doing that as well. I think that instead of saying, well, we're only 7%, we got to fight for our space. Let's amplify each other and do it together. And that's kind of how I believe. And I think that that's really going to, you know, Carla Hall is a perfect example. You know, someone who's a great friend of mine and, you know, again, trying to, to lift her up as well and trying to, to really work together to, to lift ourselves up into a place where we are equals, I think is going to be the starting point. I mean, you know, obviously this is this, this sort of um, parallel has been drawn before, but there's no doubt that the majority of people who do the, the work in the kitchen at home are women, right? And, and I mean, that's a generalization, but it's, I mean, I like to cook at my house just as much as my wife does, but I think it's not, that's not necessarily the norm in the average house. And I would imagine that your viewership, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, for many of your cooking shows and just cooking shows in general mm-hmm. are women. It seems to be sort of unusual, striking to a lot of people why when it comes to sort of professional kitchens, all of a sudden it becomes the man's job. And you even mentioned that, you know, a lot of Michelin star restaurants wouldn't even allow you in. Like you're not allowed in a Michelin star restaurant. I mean, what on earth is that about? Why? Well, and also, that wasn't that long ago. It was, you know, in, in the 90s, mid-90s. And, you know, I think, and they would write me letters and say, sorry, we don't allow women in our kitchens. And I think that the craziest thing about that is what you just said. Many of those Michelin star chefs were taught by their grandmothers and mothers and their aunts. Those were the ones who started them down this path. And I think that we have to really remember that in some ways. But also, is again, I think it goes back to just you know, women have to amplify each other. And then I think we will get a group, a consortium on board and understand that this is so important that we continue to do this. And I think that we can, you know, it's, it's a crazy because I mean, even on the networks, you know, if you look at network TV, you know, or even cable and some of the, some of the channels, you know, whether, whatever channel it is, I don't want to name names, but 
they don't believe that a woman can carry a show without a man. You know, they don't believe that, well, if CAC4, we're going to hire CAC4, we got to get her a co-host. Or if we're going to hire, you know, this female, we're going to get her a co-host, you know? And I think that that is so, you know, so we're still not even there in network and entertainment where they believe that women can carry a show themselves. So I think that we have a lot of work to do. We have made progress, but there's still a lot of work to do, as you know. I mean, we're, we're seeing it around us right now in many different, you know, with Black Lives Matter and people of color, and we're seeing it everywhere. So we, I think it's such a profound time to everybody take action because, you know, this, that's part of it. It's not just about knowing that's the right thing to do. It's really about what are you going to do about it? Right. No, no, absolutely. And so true. And actually just talking about giving back. I mean, that's how we met. I met you at a Humane Society event. First of all, I think in South by Southwest, I was putting out a movie for the Humane Society. I then met you again in Los Angeles. We did, we did a little bit of a photo shoot at an event we did there. You're very giving. You give back. You have m- multiple different organizations that you give back to. Speak a little bit about that. How important is that? And are we making a difference? Are we making an impact? I think we are. I think it just continues to be something that you know, that's the way I was brought up. I didn't grow up, you know, in a household that had a lot of money, you know, but what they did have was a lot of love and they had a lot of belief in giving back and charitable, being charitable. And they were, and, you know, I really learned from that as I grew up and really knew that I wanted to have a charity that gave back in some way. And, and we do, and just humanity, we get back in emergency feeding relief and have, and, you know, hunger relief. We um, now are supporters of a lot of other charities where we support them financially or with connecting them with other people that can help them grow as well. So I believe we all have an obligation. Any of us who have a voice, any of us who are on a stage in front of the world have an obligation to give back in some way and to show compassion, empathy, and whatever that is. It could be like we, we did it with the Humane Society. It could be for anything you believe in, I think that it's worth it. And you always make a difference. Even one voice makes a difference. So I think I always say to everybody, you know, do what you can, what you believe in is right for you and get out there and take action. No, I just take on that seriously. And we decided during this lockdown, give back with the, um, trying to educate people and making cocktails. Education, <laughs> making cocktails. Hey, why not? Well, you know what, if they, if they can't feel the pain, you know, it, it helps. Listen, it's worth noting that Kat has been awarded and recognized with the President's Volunteer Service Award and the President's Lifetime Achievement Award. It's actually slightly embarrassing even right now, just even talking to you, Kat, because quite frankly, we both of us feel incredibly underqualified. So before we wrap on this, Kat, can I, want we- clarify, I want to clarify one thing, Nigel, though. It's President Obama that gave me this award. Oh, my God. There you <laughs> go. Big, di- big difference. <laughs> big difference. But very different. And I'm sure you're not using any Goya beans, but we'll move on from that um, very quickly. <laughs> We'd love to wrap this up with a little uh, last order of drinks. We, we have something. We do a little rapid fire questions at the end. Are you up for that, Kat? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Kat Cora, people in the house. She's in her own restaurant. There's all kinds of commotion going on behind her. There has been throughout. So if you've been wondering what's going on, she's not out in the street. She's actually in a restaurant. She's just opened up. And it looks fabulous. Another burger restaurant, of course. And it's the Mesa Burger. Mesa Burger, yeah. Mesa Burger. There you go. Guys, you've got to check it out. You know, now it's open. It's one of the few restaurants that are open. You know what you need. So Kat, here we go. I'd love to know what your favorite hangover cure is. 
something healthy. You know, we can eat a lot of unhealthy things when we're hungover, but I think something healthy would be avocado toast with a runny egg. Ooh, that sounds good. Which, by the way, I had for lunch, which was partly because I was probably hungover from yesterday. But but anyway, we won't go there. French fries and dip in the yolk. It's even better. Fantastic. Okay, good. I agree with that one. That sounds fine. What would your last meal on earth be? It has to be something with truffles. My favorite. I would say some great cheese, hot baguette, a bottle of red wine, some white truffles. Just shave it all over the place. Shave it all over me. Mm. There you go. Okay, people, it's becoming R-rated very quickly here. Um, it, <laughs> I it, it it. It's my favorite food, my truffles. You can't, I, can't, oh, I didn't even yes. eat them. You just, just put them in a jar. And, yeah. yeah. That's it. Anyway. Oh, well, Tom, you introduced me to truffles. You put them underneath a bunch of eggs, and they went through all the eggs without even oh. putting the, cooking them with them. You just put them under them in a mason jar and a bed of risotto, oh, uh, risotto rice and then put some, like, eight raw eggs, you know, in their shells on top and then shut it and leave it. And then That's the way to do it. You know, you know, I mean, you know. I haven't done the egg thing, but I've done the risotto rice. I've not done the eggs, but I'm going to try that. Oh, my God. I tell you, the, the truffle, you don't even need to shave the damn eggs. By Sunday morning, if you do this on a Friday evening, by Sunday morning, just scramble your eggs, and you don't even need to, you oh don't even God. need a truffle anymore. You can like- do you realize, Tom, that you are actually telling Kat Cora about truffles and eggs? I mean, this is something in itself. I realized I just said something that... It- I never knew about the eggs, so I learned something new. Well, okay, wait a second. What ingredient are you most afraid of? Puffer fish. Ugh. I'm never going to try to fillet a puffer fish. Never. No. Do people eat them? In Japan. You have to have a special chef. They have to cook it. If, if not, done. Yeah, well, I mean, I've eaten a lot of food. That'll be your last meal on earth. That will be your last <laughs> meal on earth. <laughs> what is the weirdest dish you've ever made? I have to say, when I was in Iron Chef, I was doing a battle, and our secret ingredient was barracuda. And I made an everything bagel with barracuda and some other, I don't know. It, it, was, it was weird. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> I know, that is so weird. Okay, and finally, shaken or stirred? Definitely shaken. I love a good cold martini. Woof. And you like to shake things up, Kat. Thank you very much for coming on the Shaken and Stirred Show. I really appreciate You're the it. Best. I know you're crazy, crazy busy. You've got so many things going on. Unlike so many of us who are just sitting back having a cocktail during quarantine, you, on the other hand, are opening restaurants. Well, I got a chance to do that with you. So I can't wait to see you guys when, when this is all over. Absolutely. Could be coming up lunch or dinner with you somewhere in, in New York. Yes. Put the eggs in a mason jar sealed with the truffle. And bring then- that. Bring that with you. I'll bring it. I'll bring it. Fantastic. Everybody, Kat Cora. Check her out at catcora.com. All kinds of restaurants. Cheers. Bye, Kat. Cheers, Kat. Well, guys, thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. Stay safe. See ya.